Amen. All right. Good morning. And I hope that you are excited to, to be here at Anthem Church this morning. I'm, uh, I'm excited. We, uh, we're only eight and a half months into this. And uh, today, notwithstanding, um, we have already surpassed the average attendance in an average church. The average church is somewhere between 70 and 75 people on Sunday mornings, period. That's average. Like, so by God's grace, over the last four or five weeks, we've been averaging in the 80s. Or so, like right at 80 or so forth. So like eight months in, seven months in, we're already at a place where a lot of, a lot of churches have declined to or plateaued at. So like I, I think that God is at work in, in our small but growing and, and soon to be thriving church community here. And so that's, that's like really exciting and people are visiting and then people come back. And so that's always a good sign. That's always a good thing. And so, but it's not just that there are a few more people in the pews or the chairs. It's that people are actually starting to get involved. Because that's part of it, right? It's not just coming and sitting in a pew, but it's actually helping out and being a part of the church. So we see that happening. We will only be able to grow to the degree that we have volunteers that are willing to use their gifts and their talents and their, their skills. So praise God for that and praise God that financially we were doing okay. I mean, for eight and a half months in, God has really blessed us. I shouldn't say okay. We're, I say we're more than okay. Um, Six months after we launched, we sent a mission team to Haiti. Folks, there are churches that have been in existence for five, ten plus years and never sent anyone across the street, let alone across the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on where you're from. Um, so, I mean, that's amazing that we subsidize a group to go there in our first year. And so God has not only provided this space for us, which is amazing for a church plant, uh, and some people, and some people are serving, but the funds to do missions and to do evangelism and to do outreach, because that's what we're, we're here for. And as a result of everything that's happening, we're actually seeing some lives changed. Like, I know you guys don't know everything as a pastor. I know all kinds of stuff. But I'm seeing lives actually affected profoundly by the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people who are breaking addictions. People have been saved. We've baptized folks. So the purpose of us launching, it's happening, and it's been happening since we started. And along with that, in eight and a half months, God has taken these few people, and actually, you know, if we go back to November, we've actually doubled in size. He's taken this group in a very short amount of time, and he's knit our hearts together. Like, I, we're experiencing what I would call genuine Christian community, where we're involved in each other's lives, and we're getting to know each other, and we're sharing, and, and we're helping each other, and we're carrying each other's burdens, and we're praying for one another. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's like brothers and sisters in Christ being a, a church family, a faith family. And so we see that happening right here. So I would say that it's very clear that God's face is smiling down, like his favor is raining down upon us. We're seeing great and good and amazing things happening here in the life of our church. And, and I would say that it is because of Two things. One, we are laser focused on our mission. So, we're, we're unapologetically so, we have a mission. And our mission is to fill Andrew and the world with love filled, faith filled, hope filled followers of Jesus. 
That's what, that's what we're all about. That's what we're established. We're, we're making disciples. And what does a disciple look like? A disciple of Jesus, they're love-filled, they're faith-filled, they're hope-filled. So that's what we're after. And so we're laser-focused. So our budget, our expenses, what, how we spend our money, our calendar, what we do, the events, how we do it, everything is about does it help us as a church to make disciples? And so the question then is, why are we so focused on that mission? And folks, it is so simple. It is because we are dedicated to the glory of God. That Anthem Church exists specifically for the glory of God. All of us individually exist specifically to live for the glory of God. And that's what we're here for. So when we give and when we serve... It's for the glory of God. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, it is for the glory of God. When, when we go to Campbell at the street fair, you know, and we're meeting students and so forth, it's for the glory of God. When, when we go to Haiti, when we do our food pantry collection every third uh, Sunday of the month, you know, when we bring non-perishable food items, it's for the glory of God. When we do Operation Inasmuch, a service project at the end of next month here in town, when we, when we go to Crepe Myrtle and we do hand out candied bacon and all kinds of, and do the face painting, it's for the glory of God. It's about connecting with people, reaching out to them, making them know that, that we're here, that we want to help them, we want to bless them, inviting them into our midst and discipling them, seeing them grow in Christ. And we do all of that, and it is for the glory of God. Why are we asking folks to come back tonight at 6 p.m.? 6 p.m., we're going to do something a little different. We, and, and yeah, I mean, most of you have been. So we turn off the lights, and we light candles, and we just spend time singing. And we just spend a, long, a lot of time singing and in prayer. We take the Lord's Supper. And, I mean, to me, why do we do that? It is to experience God. It is for the glory of God. It's why we do everything that we do. And so uh, that's going to segue into the message. So please go ahead and turn in your Bible, and, and hopefully you have your Bible with you, to the book of Philippians. And Philippians is in the New Testament. It's right in between Ephesians and Colossians. Today we're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, take one of these. These are a free gift to anyone that doesn't have a Bible and would like one. Um, and as you're flipping open your Bible or opening up your Bible app, whichever one is your preference, uh, let me bring everyone up to speed in what we've been doing for several weeks, a few months now. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians, and we're almost to, to the end of this sermon series. So we've been working our way through it, through the book of Philippians. Philippians is a letter. Fancy word is epistle, if you ever hear that. So it's a letter written around the year 62 AD by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Philippi, which was located, or it would be located today in what we would consider northeast uh, Greece, in that area of the world. And when he writes this letter, he is imprisoned. He is under house arrest. Why? For simply doing what Jesus asked him to do. Right? Simply for telling people about Christ and going out and, and sharing the gospel. He's in jail for living for the glory of God. Right? That's, where, that's where it ends you up sometimes. <laughs> you live for the glory of God, you may end up in jail. All right, so that's Paul here. And, and 
Paul writes this letter, and he writes to actually teach us about a lot of different things. There is a lot of practical wisdom and great theology and all this wonderful stuff in Philippians. But if you can narrow it down to one central theme, one like main teaching point that Paul is making in this letter, it is what it means to be a follower of Jesus is living for the glory of God. That's it. Like If you could distill it down to one thing, Philippians is about what a Christian should look like. Living explicitly, exclusively for the glory of God. And, and so that everyone is on the same page. When I refer to the glory of God, I'm talking about the God who came from nowhere. Have you ever asked the question, where did God come from? And the answer is, nowhere. Because there was a time before time when there was nothing but God, so there was nowhere for Him to come from. And standing on nothing, God spoke out into nothing, and nothing obeyed Him, and nothing became something. Nothing became everything. So here's a God who came from nowhere. He actually had to create the place where we stand and sit and live and breathe. And so he comes from nowhere. He just always is. And he created everything. So who is this God who comes from nowhere? Who is this God who created everything? He is the king of glory. He is the all-powerful, self-existing, self-emanating God who has always been eternal, immortal, infinite. No beginning and no end. That's glory. When, when I refer to the glory of God, I'm referring to the very fact that when it comes to God in all things, there is no greater good than God. He is the greatest good of all possible goods. There's nothing gooder than God. And the reason that nothing is gooder than God is because God is gooder than everything else. If you take all the goods of the world and you put them together, God is still gooder than all the goods put together because he's the goodest good of all possible goods that could have ever been. And so the question is, who is this God who is the goodest good of all possible goods? And folks, He is the King of glory. And not only is He good, He delights in doing good. He is loving and gracious and compassionate and patient, kind, faithful, reliable, wise, just, and he just brings that all to us unendingly, unceasingly. And when I refer to the glory of God, I am referring to his unrivaled beauty. First, that he is wrapped, he is wrapped in light resplendent. He is clothed in marvelous heavenly light. It is the light of his holy perfection. And in Him, there is no darkness, no spot, no sin, no evil. In Him, it's just the light of goodness and righteousness. So who is this God who is of unrivaled beauty? It is holy, 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 the Lord Almighty. And as the Scripture says, and the earth is filled with His what? With His Glory and, and so you have this amazing, this astonishing God who came from nowhere, 
who created everything, who's the goodest good of all possible goods, and who he himself is unrivaled beauty. And if that's not enough, and if that does not astonish us enough, that God invites each and every one of us to know him. Personally, deeply, profoundly, and richly, the God, that God that I just tried to describe with my feeble language, that God in, extends this free and gracious and loving under, uh, invitation to all of us. He's like, come and know me. Come and enjoy my presence. Let me shower you with, with blessings eternal. Is that good? Does that sound good? And so, so let me follow that up with just a few questions here. How do you respond to that? So if that is in fact who God is, and he invites us into his presence to know him, to experience him. And if we accept that, that invitation, like we embrace it, we grab onto it, then how should we live? How should we feel, to, to use the warm and fuzzies, right? How, how should we feel about knowing that God, how, how, what should our disposition be from having met the God of eternal grace? Like, what should our attitude be every day if we, in fact, we have come face to face with the glory of God's grace? How should we feel? What should be our attitude, our disposition? How should we react to that? And folks, there's a lot of words we could throw in there, and they're probably all right, but today I'm going to say that the one way we should feel about it is content. We should feel content. Like, we, there should be this, this weight that's lifted off and this freedom and a joy and a calm and a, a rest and a peace if that is, in fact, who God is. And He has, in fact, invited us to know Him. And we have embraced that. What else is there to know, to think? What else is there to have? We should be content. And that is what Philippians chapter chapter 4, these, these few verses we're covering today, that's what they're about. Verses 10 through 14. It's about being content. And specifically, it is about learning the secret of being content. And I'll go ahead and tell you what the secret is, because everybody really loves a good secret. Right? So I'm going to go ahead and tell you the secret. Normally, I might wait to the end and keep you in suspense. Now, I just want to go ahead and share the secret with you guys because all of you are paying such good attention this morning. All right, here's the secret. The secret to being content in life is making Jesus the content of your life. Uh, you see what I did there? You see what I did there? All right. Uh, <laughs> the secret to being content in your life is making Jesus the content, the subject, the center of your life. Okay. So with that, let's go ahead and get into, into our text here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 says, Paul is writing, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what you got to know, a little backstory, the Philippians were major financial supporters of 
Paul. They, they gave to him often, not, not just to him specifically, but to the mission that he was on, to the gospel mission. So they supported the ministry of furthering the gospel. And for some reason that we don't know, a certain amount of time elapsed between a couple of the gifts that they gave. And some time goes, we don't know why, but it's not because they didn't want to give. It's because they wanted to give. They just didn't have the opportunity. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. At the very end of it, you didn't have the opportunity to give. So they were willing to give. They wanted to give. They just, they just needed the door to open to do that. They loved Paul. They loved God. They loved the gospel. They loved the mission. They, want, they loved so much they wanted to give. But where's the chance? And I don't know about you guys, but have you ever had a time where you wanted to do something? And didn't have the opportunity to do it. Like you, like I'm ready, I'm willing, I'm like, and nothing, and you don't have the chance to do it. It's rather frustrating, right? Kind of irritating. And when I was thinking about this, and I'm going to completely date myself with this reference. So sorry uh, if you're less than thirty. Uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking about this about being frustrated about when you want to do something but you can't do it. I started thinking about European vacation, TV version, and, and uh, there's that scene where the, the Griswolds are in London, and they're driving, and they're trying to get somewhere, and they're, they're in the roundabout by Parliament and by Big Ben. And so it's already awkward because you're in the wrong seat driving, and you're on the wrong side driving, and they've got to take a left out of the roundabout. And so the first time they go through, hey, kids, Big Ben, Parliament, yay! And so... Because of traffic, he cannot get left. They can't get there. And so they're caught in there. And every time they go by, big, gay kids, Big Ben, Parliament. And so, and it goes on all day and into the night is, is what it depicts there. And he's stuck. And by the end of it, he's completely delirious. Like, I actually pulled it up on YouTube to rewatch it yesterday. Like, he is slap happy, like, going out of his mind. He's like, oh, I can't believe it. And, and, and even then, and his family's asleep. He's like, look, kids, Big Ben Parliament. And it's just really funny. But it's just a picture of frustration. He wants to get left. He wants to turn left, but he has no opportunity because traffic's in the way. So I'm sure that a lot of you are feeling a little bit like Clark Griswold right now. Look, kids, the pastor's still talking. And all you want to do is give, right? Give to the church. We'll do the offering at the end, so just relax. But anyway, I, what, but the point here is that the, the Philippians, they want to give. They, want to, they just didn't have the opportunity. So, And finally, God opens up the door, and it's time for them to send this financial support to Paul. And so they send this guy named Epaphroditus. He makes his way all the way from Philippi to Rome. All the way there. And, and when he's there, it's, it's partly to, to minister to Paul, hang out with him. He's imprisoned. So to be support. But it's to provide this, this gift, this love offering for him. And verse 10 tells us that Paul actually rejoices in the Lord greatly. As a result of the gift. But what, it, what we have to understand is that he doesn't rejoice for the reasons we might think he rejoices. All right, so again, Paul is imprisoned. He is under house arrest. He can't go anywhere. He can't go out and work. You can't go out and work. You don't make money. You don't make money. You can't eat. 
It's a pretty bad situation, right? So you would say he's in dire straits. Like he he's needs something to happen if he's going to eat or have any other provisions whatsoever. And you would think that Paul would be completely like overjoyed over the money, right? You think he would celebrate that if he says, I'm rejoicing, that it's because he's got a pocket of cash now to go to Carly C's and buy some meat because they got the best meat around, right? Or, or to go wherever, to go to Sunny Skies and get a you know, some ice cream because it's the best ice cream around. So you, you would think that that's why he's happy, but he's happy not because of the money. He's completely content in his circumstances. So though he's rejoicing, though he's in dire straits in his rejoicing, the money is not the issue. The money is actually not a big deal to Paul. Um, last year, before we started we planted the church and started Sunday morning services. Um, I got to visit several churches, just going out, looking around. And there was one church, and usually we would take part of our group and we'd go visit churches. And on this one, I, I didn't go with anyone. I went myself. And I went to this church, and um, they're, let's just say they were lively. They were a lively crew. Uh, <laughs> All, so I'm not speaking ill or mean or negative, either, but I mean, it was dancing, straight up dancing, straight up like stomping in the aisles kind of church. I, I've been around some stuff, but not like to that degree. Like I was like, wow, wow, like, geez, like simmer down now. Like it was it was a whole different level of something. Like if you weren't sweating, you weren't worshiping. Like you, there's a problem. You didn't love Jesus if you weren't like, like throwing down or something. I just pulled a Justin there, sorry. So, so anyway, and it turns out that the Sunday that I was visiting at this church happened to be that pastor's like 20 or 25th like year anniversary of pastoring that church. And the whole church service was devoted to honoring him. Yeah, whatever. And uh, so that's good. And uh, at the end of the service, they said, here, pastor, here's a gift from the church. They took up an offering specifically for him and they cut a check and they put an envelope and they gave it to him. And so right there in front of everybody, you know, he opens the envelope up and he looks in and my man threw down. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, he was like just all over the place. I Up and down the aisle, stomping, screaming, yelling. I mean, straight up cutting the fool. Straight up. I'm not speaking ill. I'm just trying to describe what I'm watching here. And so, like, I'm like, wow. And it took five minutes for my man to simmer down. And finally, like, I, he composed himself a little bit. And with great excitement, he's like, all right, all right. I've had my eye on this certain something, and I'm going to go out and buy it now. And he, and I actually forgot what it was he said he was going to buy, but it was something very extravagant. It was something very, like, luxury item. And I'll be honest with you, in the moment, I was really taken back. To see a person celebrate money that much, and to see a Christian celebrate money that much, and particularly a pastor. And it, it actually grieved my heart to see someone that overwhelmed just simply because they received a pocket full of cash. And... What's happening in, in Philippians chapter 4 is Paul doesn't react 
that way to the gift. There, there, there's a, I'm, I'm certain it's a substantial amount of money that comes from Philippi to Paul. But it's not the money that, that makes him rejoice. He's content. He is content. Like, he's content with what he has. He's content with what he doesn't have. So it's not the money. The money is not a big deal. The reason why he so rejoices in the Lord greatly, it tells us in verse 10, verse, uh, 10 it's because they were concerned for him. They loved him. They showed care for him. It's not the money. It's the fact that there was a group of people that loved him so much that they were in support. It was the people. It was their loving affection that caused him to rejoice in the Lord greatly. The word in verse 10 says, right, that it says revived. It revived. You, know, you could actually kind of cross it out and write the word flourished in there. So it wasn't like they, they're... they're Love for him was dead. It was always there because like, you've been wanting to do it. You just didn't have an opportunity. So it's always been there, but now it's flourishing. They have an opportunity to give it. And that's what love should do. Love should always flourish. It, it should always be moving. And like affection moves out. It moves out. So they, they are, their love for him is real. It's true. It's not just talk. It's flourishing. That's why they sent the gift. And in verse 14, Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And the, the verb there, to share, means to identify with. So this is what's happening. When the Philippians took up their offering and they were sent it to Paul, what they were saying was, Paul, we are with you. They were just throwing money into a basket. They weren't just throwing money at a ministry. They weren't just throwing money at a cause which we Americans are very good at doing, as if we kind of wipe our hands clean. I gave something, right? So they weren't just throwing money at stuff. They were actually stating something with their giving. Paul, you are not alone. We are with you. We know that you're enduring the hardships of the gospel. We know that you're in prison, and we will do anything and everything that we can to support you. We love you, Paul. We love you. We're with you. We got you. We got your back. And so it is that display. That's why Paul rejoices. He's deeply moved. He's like, he's moved by their kindness. And so much, and I think this is cool. He's so moved by their kindness that their love for him causes him to love God. It doesn't say, oh, I rejoice in you, Philippians. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly the love of other people led him to love god to glorify god to praise god to worship god and folks that is what christian community should look like that when we say we're church we're not talking about just showing up on a sunday morning and and sitting through a service or anything like that we're this is part of it i would say an important part of it but this isn't it like this is just a component of what it means to be part of a local church that it means being a christian family community like enjoying each other knowing each other sharing each other's struggles sharing each other's lives hey come over come to dinner hey can we help someone with a need where are you at? How can I pray for you? Like, that's, that's what church is. It's brothers and sisters doing that for one another. And, and I want to know, like, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but have you ever experienced true community? 
I'm talking about loving Christian community. Have you ever been exposed to that? Have you ever been on the receiving end? Have you ever been a part of that? Folks, if you haven't, one, there's an opportunity here to experience it because I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing it happen. Number two, if you've never seen it, never experienced it, just know it is a beautiful thing. It is so right. It is so good when you see brothers and sisters in Christ pulling each other up, helping each other, serving alongside. It's the way it should be. And, and so my prayer, one of my prayers is, you know, may we, may Anthem Church be like the church in Philippi. May we be a group of people that we work together and we support those on mission and we support those that are going through hardship, that we support those that need help and that we would be like Paul, that when we are blessed by our brothers and sisters, that we are quick to rejoice in the Lord greatly. Right? All right, moving on. Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians know that it's not the money that's got him all excited. It's not the money why he's rejoicing. He doesn't want them to think that it's the gift itself. So to do that, he writes the words of verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. So Paul is content. What, he, what he's saying here is, I'm happy. I'm completely happy. I'm happy no matter what. I'm, no, I'm happy no matter what my circumstances or my situation is. I'm happy because you sent me a gift, but it's not the money that is making me happy. Something else is making me happy. It's not that. I'm content. Now, here's the question for all of us. How in the world can it be possible to be content in your circumstances no matter what they may be? How can it be, or how can we get to the place where we can say, I'm good? And maybe everything is good around me, or maybe everything's falling apart. And get to the point where either way, I'm like, yeah, I'm good. How, how can we get there? What does it take to get there? Verse 12, Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, to have a lot. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the what? Secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. So Paul can say that he's content no matter what because he's learned how to be content. He's learned the secret of being content. And the secret of being content in life is making Jesus, the what? Content of of your life. All right, what does it mean to be content? You know that I think that the world defines the word content very differently than the Bible defines it. When the world says or uses the word content, to me it comes across as meaning just kind of good enough. It's having reached some minimum standard. Like it's, it's, it's good enough, right? It's like when you ask someone, how are you doing? And the person says, can't complain. Right? What they're really communicating in that moment, well, I guess everything's all right. 
I'm not going to be a jerk and say that it could be better because they're not bad. They're good enough. I'm content. So can't complain. Like that's how it comes across, right? It almost sounds a bit negative. That's how the world, that's how the world defines it. It's, it's, things are par. And if I'm playing golf, par is good. But in the real world, when it comes to being content, par isn't good. Par is par. It's not great. It's not good. It's par. Does that sound exciting? Par isn't exciting. Good enough isn't exciting. That's not motivating. That's not very compelling. Like, what if we tell, hey, become a Christian and life will be par? Like that, okay. Yay, Jesus. No, like it doesn't work that way. So that's how the world defines it. The Bible defines the word content as being fully, fully, fully satisfied. Completely, completely fulfilled. We're talking about being full. Full. There's no lack. There's nothing that's needed. It's, it's having all of your needs, all of your wants, all of your hopes, all of your dreams. That's how the Bible defines the word content. It's experiencing abundance and overflow. It's, it's riches. It's what it's referring to. So I would say so, so much that this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is, means to experience this level of contentedness. Being full, complete. Just imagine what your life would be like if you actually experienced that level of content. Would that be good? Folks, we're talking about bliss at that point. We're talking joy. There is calm. There is peace. It is, it, that's the good life. To experience contentedness and, and just assurance in all things, having everything that we need to have, isn't that what we ultimately want? Like, then no matter the chaos around our lives, man, I am good. I'm good. Can't complain because of things of the past. Like, no, nah, I can't complain, whatever. No, nah, man, I'm, I'm good. Things are right. And then we'd be having to simmer down because we're all excited at that point. All right. Now, the good news is this. If you want to be content, and I'm talking about how the Bible defines it. If you want to be satisfied and fulfilled, here's the good news. God offers it freely. God Offers us, graciously says, do you want it? Here you go. He gives it. It's a free gift to every one of us if we want it. It's that easy, okay? However, it does take time, and it does take a little bit of effort on our part. Only in this regard, we're going to have to go through some stuff to get there, unfortunately. You have to learn to be content. We don't come into this world knowing how to be content, Right? We don't know how to just come in and, and be content. Uh, if you've ever been around a baby, folks, we come into this world predisposed to be completely unsatisfied with whatever our circumstances are. No matter what they are, and it's, it's sin. 
We are born with a sinful heart. And in this sinful heart, we have pride and we have lust and we have jealousy and we have self-centeredness and we have coveting and we have all this stuff. And every bit of that competes and fights against God's desire for us to be fulfilled and satisfied and full. So this is how we come into the world. And, and what God is saying is like, I want you. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to be full. I want you to never thirst again. That's what God's desire for us is. And so we have to learn the secret. And the secret is making Jesus the content of our lives. So instead of looking to be satisfied in the things of the world, it's looking up to Jesus. Instead of like looking for the things that the world offers, instead of, of looking at the stuff down here, um, it is making Jesus your everything. It's making Jesus the center of your life. It's making Jesus the content of your life. It's, it's proclaiming the words of Psalm chapter 16, verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from from you. See, that's what God offers you. Like God isn't offering you stuff outside of himself. God is offering himself to you for he himself to be your riches, your abundance, your wealth, everything that you could ever dream of, everything you could ever imagine, everything that you ever want is found exclusively in God, exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. So I would say taste of the Lord and you'll see that he is good. Embrace this gospel, this good news of Jesus, and know that God invites you in and that he pours lavish riches, grace into our lives. He becomes our father and he guides and he protects and he takes care of us each and every step of the way. And, and he gives us this living water. This is what Jesus referred to in, 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 Mar in John chapter 4. I'll give you water from which you will never thirst again. And he's saying, I'm on the, you'll, you'll be content. You'll be satisfied. You'll be completely satisfied. And, and, and here's the hard part. We have to learn this. And the way that we, we learn th through this is by going through trials. We have to learn this by going through, through different trials. And, and the reason we have to do that, again, we're born with this, this, this sinful heart. And it has to kind of get refined out of us. I go back to the, the baby illustration. Because we, we can be around an infant and we know instantly they, they're not content with anything. Right? I, I remember very distinctly when, when Edie was like a week or two old. And there's one night she's just going nuts. I don't, we don't know why. Like she's screaming her head off. And, and so, Jamie, you sleep. I'm going to take Edie down. And I'm going to take her to the couch. I'm just going to hold her. Maybe I'll rock her or something. And she had just been fed. She'd been burped. Her diaper had been changed. She swaddled. So she's all warm and cozy. Daddy's got her in his arms. Like she's safe and screaming. And, and there's a few of you in here that were around back then. I mean, Edie screaming was virtually a superpower. Like, it, she could shatter bulletproof glass. 
Like, it was at that degree. She was like Banshee from the X-Men. Like, it was like a whole different level of screaming. Like, oh, my. And she's going nuts. And, and me, you know, like uh, um, the Myers-Briggs thinker, feeler, I'm like me being the thinker that I am. I'm reasoning with this one we call Edie, we fed you. <laughs> We've burped you, you know, I go through the whole thing. Daddy's got you. It's okay. Why are you freaking out? And folks, it's one of those moments where God's voice was virtually audible. He spoke into my heart. He says, Rick, you do the same thing. I still remember it very clearly. He's like, you do the same thing. He's like, I've got you. Everything's okay. I've given you everything you need. And then some. Why do you freak out? And, and the reason that, that I freak out, honestly, is more than often has to do with my level of discontent. It has to do with, with me not understanding what it is that God has given me, what it is that God has provided, what He's promised for me or given to me, what Jesus has done for me. And so I forget all of that, and, and folks, and I walk around often in this sin of discontent. And my guess is that we all do. And you know what it is? That when we get into those moments where we're lacking contentedness and satisfaction as followers of Jesus, the reason why is that we take our eyes off of the prize, off of Christ, so our head should be up, we bring our head down, and we start looking for things down here to satisfy us. We start looking for the things of the world. I need the newest phone. When I got my phone last month, it was awesome and it satisfied me, but now it's the old model. And so therefore, it doesn't satisfy me anymore, so I need the new model. And that'll only be as good until the next model comes out two days after that. So, so when we look to the things of the world, it just, they, don't, they don't do what they say they're going to do. They overpromise and underdeliver. Like I always say, you know, that it's kind of foolish to trust or to look for contentedness in the things of the world because everything down here burns, corrodes, dies, decays, decomposes, rusts, gets eaten by moss, gets stolen, wears out, and gets old. Everything down here, all of it, falls into those categories. So therefore, we can't depend on it. We can't rely on it. It never pulls through on what it says it never delivers on what it says that it's going to do every time it lets us down and so long as i'm looking for the next job nothing wrong with looking for a job or actually wanting to find a new job but if i'm thinking that's the only way i'll be happy when we're doing that kind of stuff i need the new car my car's fine but i need a new car That'll make me happy. I need a new TV. I need a bigger house. I need a new wife. Whatever the case may be, anytime we think something different and new is what will make us content. That's, our, that's us taking our eyes off of him who is the goodest good of all goods, putting it down here on stuff that isn't all that good at the end of the day and saying, make me content, and then being all disappointed when it doesn't pull through. And so we'll never be content so long as we're looking to the things of the world. And so we have to learn how to be content. And here's the hard part. We have to go through trials. We have to go through trials, and it stinks. It totally stinks every time we do. But God brings us into these seasons in life. 
in order to do this beautiful, beautiful work in us. To change us, to change our hearts. So when we, when we go through a test, God is taking the sin out and He's replacing it with something better. He's refining us when we go through that. God turns up the heat. He brings us into these things in our life and they stink when we go through it, but He turns up the heat so that He can do this incredible work. And, and so just, um, and some of you may know this, but uh, a silversmith, you get a silversmith and he gets silver. And how does he purify the silver? How does he refine it? Well, he brings it to a bowl. He melts it down. He heats it to the point that he melts silver. Then what happens is that the impurities, it's called dross, float up to the top. And then he sits there and he skims it off the top. He removes the impurities. And when there's no more dross, it's pure silver. And so that is what God does when he brings us through these seasons of testing and trial, turning up the heat, virtually liquefying us, it feels like sometimes. And so, but he's, he's skimming off the impurities. He's removing those things in our heart that are so attracted to the things of the world that it keeps us from focusing on Christ. And then what happens is, then you got a shiny heart. And it's shiny because it's filled with Christ. In other words, Jesus is the content it is the light of Christ shining through in your heart that does that. That's why James chapter 1, verse 2 and through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of, of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I know we like to ignore the first part, take joy in the trials, right? But what, let's focus on that last part, lacking nothing. How does that sound? Does that sound good? To get to the place in your life, in your mind and in your heart where you're like, I lack nothing. And maybe you are going through a good time, but what if you're going through a really bad time and something bad has happened and there's chaos and there's drama and trauma and all of that around your life and say, I am lacking nothing. I'm good. Life is good. I mean, just imagine what it would be like to, to, to be at that place. And folks, that's what joy looks like. That's what peace looks like. That's the good life. And, and like, let me switch little gears here. Typically, when we think about learning to be content, what we automatically think about is learning how to be content, good enough, in the bad times, right? That's usually how we think about it. Well, I'm going through a time and I don't have that much money. It's lean times. I'm, I'm really struggling financially. Well, I got to learn to be content here. And clearly we do. But Paul says we have to learn how to be content in those times and in times of having. In times where we've got some money in the bank. In times where we, we got some under the mattress or whatever. And that probably sounds a little odd to us. Because why in the world do you have to learn to be content when you've got stuff? And the reason that sounds odd is because, see, we have to deconstruct this thinking that contentedness comes in the things of the world. 
Because see, automatically, it's like, why do I need to learn, be content if I got the things of the world? Ah, because that's not, con- that's not contentedness. You're looking at it in the wrong way. So that's number one. But the second thing you got to realize is that usually the people that struggle with being content the most are the ones who have the most. The more we have, the harder it is, y'all, to be satisfied with what it is that we actually do have. It's stuff is an addiction. Money is an addiction. Wealth, finances, toys, possessions. It's all an addiction. And our desires, our heart's desires for these things knows no bounds. Knows no bounds. And it'll, compl- it'll keep growing and it'll expand and more and more so if it is left unrestrained. If it is left unchecked, it'll continue to grow. Wealth robs us of the ability to know that we have good enough. That's what addictions do. Like when we're in, a, in an addiction, it's never enough. I need more. I need the next, etc. So, so that, that's how it works. So when, the more money we have, the more stuff we want. And for the Christian, I would say that it is way easier to disgrace the, our faith in Jesus in times of poverty than it is in time, I'm sorry, in times of prosperity than in times of poverty. Because it's when we have a lot that we forget about God. It's when we have, when everything's comfortable with the things of the world, we kind of forget about heaven. We forget to set our gaze on the heavenly and eternal, and we set it down here, and there, everything's all right. And we drift away from God. And so I think it's harder in our prosperity to be content because contentedness is not in the stuff. Contentedness is in Jesus. Is in Christ. And so we got to learn. We have to learn how to be content. We have to learn the secret. We don't want to fall prey to being all materialistic and being all wrapped up in what we have and what we don't have and pursuing the next thing and the next toy and all of that. Because folks, we'll never ever be satisfied. We'll never be fulfilled if that is how we live. And that's not the life that God wants for you. God desires for you to be fulfilled and satisfied. He wants you to be full, never thirst again, to taste of his grace and know that he is good. God desires that so deeply and richly for all of us. So much so that this is what he did. For God so loved us, he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus is God. And he, he comes into this world. He's born of a virgin. Cool miracle. Way cool miracle. And there, God, the divine, and humanity are married in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's fully God and fully man, the, the God-man. And so he walks on this earth among us. And he never sins Like he was tempted in every way and he lived the life we're supposed to live. He lived the life that we failed to live because we're the sinners. And that that life on earth culminated with him willingly going to a cross. And what happened on that cross, miracle, he's nailed 
to wood and there your sin and my sin is taken off of us and is laid upon his shoulders. And because your sin and my sin were laid upon him, God looked at him and then poured out his judgment, his wrath, his righteousness on Jesus. Not because he deserved it, because clearly he did not deserve it. We're the ones that deserve it. We're the ones that go down the path of sexual immorality, trying to find fulfillment in that. We're the ones that go down the the road of addictions, trying to find uh, uh, fulfillment and satisfaction in that. We're the ones that go towards stuff trying to find a, uh, fulfillment in that. And we're the ones that lie and cheat and gossip. We're the haters. We're, we're the ones that are looking to anything but God. But God being rich in mercy comes down and Jesus goes to a cross and my sin and your sin are laid upon him and he's on the cross and he's, he's bleeding for us. And there he faced the death that we deserve to face, the judgment we deserve to 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 receive, and he died. He laid his life down. He substituted himself. He sacrificed himself. That's love. That's what love looks like. It's sacrifice, and he does this. They take him off the cross, folks. They put him in a tomb. They roll this big rock over it. Three days later, Jesus sits up. His eyes open up. He stands up. He rolls the stone away. He walks up out of the grave cool miracle only god to say cool i mean what an understatement right because in that moment what god proved is that he was victor over sin and death and darkness and he did all of that that you may enter into the riches of god's grace forever and ever that you may receive grace that you may be forgiven and one day enter into the very presence of God in heaven forever and ever. That is how much God wants you to be fulfilled. He has stopped at nothing to make sure that you're satisfied, that you're content. And if you would just place your faith in that, if you have, here's what happens. It's, it's Psalm 23, verse 1, and It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you place your faith, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus, He is your shepherd and He's protecting, guiding, blessing in every way. His presence is right there with you. And you shall never need anything. You shall never want for anything. For He becomes your satisfaction, your fulfillment, your fullness forever and ever, and ever. And how is it that Jesus can do that? Because He is the God who came from nowhere. He is the God who created everything, so He's powerful enough to do everything for you that needs to be done. And how do you know that you'll never have any want in Jesus? It's because He's the good as good of all possible goods. There's nothing gooder than Jesus, so where else is there to go? And He delights in doing good for you all the time. And how do you know that Jesus, the shepherd, in him you'll, have, you'll never have a want? It's because he's unrivaled beauty. He is a spectacle of goodness and wisdom all of the time. So how do you need to respond to this? What do you need to do with all of this? If you've never accepted Jesus, maybe today is the morning you place your faith in him because it starts there. There is no contentedness apart from trusting in Jesus Christ. So it begins there. 
If you've already done that, if you've done that in the past, are you living in content? Are you satisfied, fulfilled? Are you experienced that each and every day? If not, it may be that you're looking for it in the things of the world. Well, repent. God loves you. God loves you. Just repent, confess it, and say, God, help me to focus on you. Help me for you to be the content of my heart that I may be content all the days of my life. So let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm just going to give you some silent 30 seconds for you personally to respond to the Lord where you're at. Lord, Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity that you have given to us, Lord, this open door to know you, to experience you, Lord, to be satisfied by you, Lord, for you to be our shepherd, that we may never be in need, that we may never be in want of anything, Lord, this opportunity for you to be our God that in you, Lord, we know that you are our good and that we have no need for anything else. And we thank you that you make that possible through grace, by the, the grace given as displayed through your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to die that we may have life. That you may become our everything, Lord. That you may become the center of it all in our hearts. So Lord, I, I pray for all of us now, Lord, wherever we are, that we would embrace you. That you would be our everything. That you would be our all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to the Lord in song.